Whenever you consider the issue of Christ's return, you have to think through, how will I fare on that day? Now, one of the glorious truths of the gospel is that for all those who are in Christ Jesus, God will deliver you until the end. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part seven of Abiding in the Last Hour from 1 John chapters two and three with Pastor Paul Twiss. As we wind down this wonderful exposition from 1 John, Pastor Paul joins us today. So Pastor Paul, by tomorrow when we finish, we will have had an explanation of several biblical principles, abiding in Christ, eternity, adoption, and Christ's return. Is there one that stands out to you? There is, the doctrine of adoption. I believe as Christians we should think often on 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We'll be focusing on this both today and tomorrow. Here is where John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. These words were a great comfort to me as a new believer and still are today. Beautiful words of assurance, for sure. Thanks, Pastor Paul. And now here's part seven of Abiding in the Last Hour. If you have a Bible, please turn then to 1 John. And tonight our passage will be uh, chapter 2, verse 28 through 2, 3, 3. The word reads, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, And what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So reads the word of God. Well, from time to time, I have the opportunity to teach not just the Bible, but to teach Uh, interpretation of the Bible, how it is that we should read the text and what the rules are that should govern our interpretation of the text. And one of the simplest uh, pieces of advice that I give to people is that you should really be reading on two levels. I refer to them as the, the micro and the macro level. So I encourage people to be reading the Bible at the verse by verse level. It's a good and a healthy thing to be engaging with the text Uh, and all of its nuances, just a few verses at a time. That is what I refer to as the micro level. And then I say at the same time, try to be engaging with the text at the macro level. Uh, Try to step back and look at the bigger picture. Um, Set aside time occasionally to just sit and read a whole gospel in one sitting, or to sit down and read the book of Genesis in in one read-through. When you read the book, the Bible, on the macro level, 
you really do start to appreciate the storyline of Scripture, the storyline that is God's redemptive plan that runs from Genesis to Revelation, and it is glorious. Now, I would argue that there is something of a representation of that storyline even within the book of 1 John. Uh, There is something of a representation of the beginning to the end within these five chapters. We began in chapter 1, verse 1, and we read that which was from the beginning. The letter starts in eternity past. We then move forward, and John considers many different aspects of the Christian life. And then as we get to about halfway through the letter, we saw last week that John is now talking to us about the last hour, and there's a sense of urgency and a sense of things coming to a climax. And here we are this evening thinking about the return of Christ. So John really has taken us from eternity past and now set our vision to eternity future. And the return of Christ is just such a helpful issue to ponder and to wrestle with. When anybody comes to terms with the reality of Christ's second coming, his imminent return, when you truly engage with that fact and think about it, at some point you are forced to answer the question, how will I fare on that last day? I remember as an unbeliever looking into the claims of Christianity and doing so very casually until it dawned upon me that one of the claims that the Christians were making is that Christ will soon return. And that was the single fact that really prompted my investigation to go up a notch. I realized that if it is true that Christ is soon going to return, then I need to be sure what I believe on that last day. Whenever you consider the issue of Christ's return, you have to think through, how will I fare on that day? Now, one of the glorious truths of the gospel is that for all those who are in Christ Jesus, God will deliver you until the end. The one whom he justifies, he will glorify. And there is a a rest available to every Christian from the knowledge that God will deliver you unto glory. We are kept in his grace. At the same time, the Bible does nothing to nullify the responsibility of every Christian to persevere. So just think about these two truths. The scriptures tell us that if you are in Christ, God will keep you safe until the end and deliver you unto glory. And that is a wonderful truth. At the same time, often right next door, we see the other side of the coin, which is every Christian has a responsibility to press on and to fight to make it to the end. I think my favorite example of this truth is in the letter of Jude. As an aside, have you noticed when you read through the New Testament, the closer and closer we get towards the end, the more false teachers becomes a prevalent theme. The letter of Jude, just squeezed in there before Revelation, has that same issue of false teachers. False teachers having crept into the congregation disrupting their doctrine and therefore in turn their lifestyle. And what is it Jude says to this congregation at this dangerous point in their existence? 
Well, we all know the doxology of the letter. He says at the very end, now to him who is able to keep you. Just a wonderful truth to rest in. To him who is able to keep you. Jude is saying, you, Christian, are being kept. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you as blameless before the glory of his presence. To him be glory and dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. And we delight in that doxology. But did you ever notice what comes just two verses before? It is the very clear imperative from Jude to keep yourselves in the love of God. And he doesn't seek to explain how those two fit together. He says, keep yourself, Christian, in the love of God. And then he says, now to him who is able to keep you. So all the way through scripture, we see these two realities side by side. How might we explain them? All those who fail to press on and fight until the end will have shown themselves to have never had a part with Christ in the first place. Is God keeping you? Yes. Must you keep yourself? Yes. Scripture says both. And so it should be no surprise to us that in a letter like 1 John, which is all about assurance, John is seeking to comfort and assure these believers. In this letter, we find the very real imperative in verse 28, now little children, abide in him. This is a command that John is issuing. And he's very clear about why we must abide so that when he, he being Christ, appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And John wants us to take seriously the possibility that after a life lived where we profess Christ, there may be shame at his appearing. I think in verse 29, he expands on this thought. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you truly abide, as we thought about last week, abiding in the truth and in Christ and in communion and in the word, if you abide, then there will be fruit in your life. There will be fruit in your life, one of which is righteousness. So John simply points out one of the ethical or moral ramifications of abiding, and that is the fruit of righteousness. He wants believers to consider that last day and to ensure that they are fighting the good fight until the end. And John knows exactly the scenario that these believers are facing. He knows the rough time they've had of it with these false teachers. In addition to those problems that are presented externally to them, of course, there is also issues internally, namely that there is sin that remains and there is temptation at every corner to dishonor Christ. And it could be any number of sins that causes them to walk away from the faith. And John, being an excellent pastor, knows all of this, and yet he does not hesitate to say, you need to abide so that you will not be ashamed. The issue is exactly the same for us. We face a multitude of Issues externally, sin remaining internally that would cause us to behave in such a way that we do not fight the fight and there is great shame at the return of Christ. The question 
that arises out of these two verses is how can I abide until the end so that I have confidence and not shame when Christ appears? How is it that I can keep going? How can I persevere in the way that the Bible instructs me to persevere so that on that great glorious day, for me, it is a day of joy and it is not a day of shame? That is the question that this passage seeks to answer. And the way in which John answers it, I think, is in a very fatherly, parental way. Allow me to illustrate. We have uh, a bunch of kids in our house. Um, I think we're up to six or seven now. <laughs> I know how many kids I have. I'm only joking. Just don't ask me their dates of birth. And the reality of parenting is your first child bears the brunt of all of your ignorance and your bad mistakes. And then by the time you have number two, you've hopefully learned something along the way. And then number three, you've improved a bit more. And somewhere along the way, we learned that one of the best ways we can serve our children and position them to succeed to that which we require of them is simply to set their expectations. We would simply set their expectations and then they would know what's coming. Ten minutes from now... We're going to leave. In 10 minutes, I'm going to ask you to put your shoes on and we're going to leave. And that simple expectation setting would often, not always, but often make the world of difference when the request came. What John does in the next few verses, the first few verses of chapter 3, is simply to set his readers' expectations. He sets their expectations about what life will look like as they seek to abide until the end. And that setting of expectations is so crucially important, both for them and for us today. When you have your expectations correctly set, when your expectations as a Christian are biblical, then you have a solid foundation upon which you are well positioned to succeed in the fight that the Bible instructs you to fight until the very end. Now, what are the expectations? There are at least three of them that I want to show you in the passage this evening. The first one is simply that as children of God, we will only ever experience the Father's love. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The first thing to notice is just how much John is laboring the present-day reality of our adoption. As Christians, we can so often think about gospel blessings as a future reality, as if somehow they're not in force right now in our lives. So our tendency would often to be putting the adoptive fatherly love of God on the horizon of our salvation neglecting to believe the fact that we are receiving it right now. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He uses a, a tense which indicates this event has already occurred. It keeps playing itself out in our lives. We keep receiving his love, but he has adopted us. Then he says at the end of verse 1, and so we are. This is a point of emphasis for John. If you have a King James Bible, those words aren't there. There is a textual variation, and I think they were remiss to not include those words. I think this is completely in line with what John is doing in this text, 
emphasizing the present reality of our adoption. And then notice how in verse 2, he comes back to it again. Beloved, we are God's children now. He's trying to show us that right now, whatever your experience in life, God is showering his fatherly love upon you. And this is one of the most precious truths of the gospel. When God justified you, he was by no means obligated to bring you into his family. When God set in motion the plan to crush his son so that on that day in the heavenly courtroom, when all the evidence was laid out concerning your life and all of your sin was plain to see to everyone, and God declared on that day, not guilty, more than that, justified, righteous in my sight, there was no obligation to go any further. That court scene could have ended right there and then. You could have walked out free from all guilt, no sin against your name, which in and of itself is glorious. And yet God, according to his love, went further and says, and justified and my son, my daughter, in my family. From now on, address me as father. I remember discovering this truth when I was a very young Christian, maybe in the first year of my salvation. I'd come to salvation with a very basic understanding of the gospel, as I think we all do. And shortly after, I was baptized. I was baptized in the month of March, which means it was bitterly cold outside. It was a Sunday evening, and the church that I was baptized in doesn't have a, a baptistry like ours, so every time there would be a baptism, they would get in a huge pool and fill it with water. They would fill it on Friday afternoon, and then they would put a heater into the water and just spend the whole weekend heating this water so that come Sunday evening service, it was nice and warm for the baptisms. And that one time in March, we discovered about an hour before the service that the heater was broken. <laughs> and so with an hour to go, this water was ice cold. It was the first test of my faith. <laughs> and that evening, many friends came. One friend that came is a friend named Charlie. And the Lord had really put him in my life, according to his providence, as a mentor in those first few years. And Charlie handed me a book after my baptism, which I hadn't heard of at the time, but is a classic. And the book was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And he wrote a lovely note in the front. I have the book here with me this evening. And it was over the next few weeks and months that I read this book. And I remember getting to chapter 19, which is all about adoption. Now, I grew up without any fatherly figure. I had no real idea of what it meant to have a dad. And it had not occurred to me, with my very simple understanding of the gospel, it just hadn't occurred to me that as I became a Christian, so I gained a father. I knew my sins were forgiven, and that was the extent of my understanding. And I read chapter 19, and Packer's saying, now you have a heavenly father. And he concludes that chapter, and I remember, I think, memorizing these words at that time because they were so formative for me. He concludes that chapter by saying, do you know who you are? You are a child of God. 
God is your father, heaven is your home, Christ is your brother, and so is every other Christian too. And he exhorts his readers to tell themselves who they are as a child of God over and over and over again. Because if 1 John is all about what it means to be found in Christ, the doctrine of adoption is right at the center. The doctrine of adoption is is so central to what it means to be a Christian. You are now a child of God. And that single fact has to shape your worldview. That has to set your expectations. How does it set your expectations? In this way, every single thing that you experience in this life is a manifestation of God's fatherly love to you. Now that you're a child of God, you never know anything but his fatherly love towards you. It may come in rich blessings. It may come in the form of discipline. Whatever it is in your life that you're experiencing, you trust that this is God's love towards me. God loves me because he brought me into his family. And for that reason, the only thing I ever experience is the fatherly love of God. That has to shape your worldview. Whether it is rich, rich times of blessing or incredible trial, the fact of your adoption is a present reality. You are not awaiting to find out the Father's love on the last day. He's giving it to you right now. And I know that there are many times when it will be very difficult to connect the dots. I understand completely. There will be many times when you look at the reality of your life and you just cannot connect it with the biblical truth that God is loving you as a father right now. In part, I would say that makes complete sense. We are not God. Our ways are not his ways. Our wisdom is not his wisdom. But even more than that, that that first few words, see what kind of love that John writes. Originally, it had the connotation of see from what land this love comes. See from what country this love comes. The idea being the love, the adoptive love of God towards you is altogether not of this world. It doesn't belong in this world. I guarantee you, you have never seen the adoptive love of God being played out in this world. It is not of this world. It is completely altogether other. And so it would make sense that we can't always comprehend it. But our religion is a religion of trust. It is one of faith. And we choose to believe the text And we ingrain it into our hearts so as to appropriately set our expectations and know that we will only ever experience the fatherly love of God. And when you have that expectation set in your hearts, you are positioning yourself well to keep fighting until the very end. That is the first expectation that John sets. He goes on and gives a second one looking now At the second half of verse one, he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The second expectation being, as children of God, you will not experience the love of the world. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. What does the quote, love the Father has given to us, mean to you? 
The more we try, unsuccessfully, to get love and understanding from a fleeting world system, we Christians must see the Father's love as more and more precious. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. To hear this message again, or any message in this series, visit TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts, and there you can search our rich archive of faithful gospel preaching. Be listening tomorrow for Part 8, the conclusion of Abiding in the Last Hour. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.